Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. My guest today is Dan Reich, who is a serial entrepreneur. Some of the companies he founded are Spinback, Tula, and Troops. Tula started as a digitally native health and beauty brand where Dan served as CEO from inception to over a million in sales in less than a year. Troops is a B2B technology company that is building a mobile first intelligent CRM. We talk about how Dan got into entrepreneurship at a very early age, his fascination with technology, and as well as experience building both B2C businesses and B2B businesses and destructing some of the differences. Without further ado, here's Dan. Dan, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me, man. So let's start from the very beginning. What was your initial attraction to entrepreneurship? I've been doing the entrepreneurship thing my whole life, even in the earliest days of middle school, I remember I would take baseball cards. I'd go out to the edge of my driveway in New Jersey and I'd lay them out, hoping my neighbors would go by and I would try to sell them baseball cards. I remember in high school, I would go on eBay and I would buy bouncy balls wholesale and I'd shove them in my backpack and bring them to school and put them in my locker. And I would be dealing and selling bouncy balls out of my locker. I remember at one point I made enough money that I figured I would just give everything away for free because I didn't want to sell them anymore. And you would just see bouncy balls flying everywhere. I got in trouble. I got suspended for doing that. So, you know, you name it, man. I've just been doing startups in the truest sense my whole life. I think I've done 15 or 16 different companies, give or take. They didn't all work. It'd be sweet if they all did, but fortunately a few of them worked out quite okay. But I just love the journey, man. It's just, there's nothing like it. That's awesome. I can understand that you probably knew the word arbitrage probably a lot earlier than a lot of people (laughs) with those experiences. When did you realize that, hey, I wanted to be an entrepreneur, maybe professionally, that I didn't want to maybe work for someone else or go in the corporate world? Yeah, I think in college is really when I I figured out that this is what I want to do forever with my life. I always thought I was going to grow up and be a doctor. My household, you grow up, you'd be a doctor, a lawyer, your parents expect of you. And so my plan was to go to school. I was going to study biomedical engineering. I volunteered on National Ski Patrol. And I figured those two things, Ski Patrol and biomedical engineering, would be a nice pretty package to go be shipped off to medical school. And when I got to school, I realized I absolutely hated chemistry. I hated biology. But I loved like hardcore technology. In high school, I was building computers for my first job. I'm literally sitting on the floor assembling motherboards and processors. I was one of the youngest Intel channel resellers and Microsoft certified partners. So had the technology dimension. But then really when I got to school, one of the first companies I started there was um, an events and marketing company. Basically, my frat got kicked off campus for throwing a massive Halloween party, like $93,000 worth of fines. And shortly thereafter, I was like, well, now what am I going to do? Where are we going to go to have fun? Like any classic entrepreneur that's trying to solve a problem, the problem I was trying to solve is where are we going to go party? And so I threw a party at a bar and sold tickets and gave the proceeds away to the Red Cross for charity. And all my friends after were like, man, that was awesome. When's the next one? When are you going to do another? And 
a buddy of mine that I was studying engineering with was like, Dan, this is really awesome. You know, we could just formalize this and turn it into a company. I hadn't thought about it for this business and come back to another company I started in high school. But that's what we did. His father was a lawyer. He created all the formation docs. We turned that into a legitimate company and we ended up building one of the largest events and marketing companies on college. And it was just the best feeling to think about making money, doing something that we loved. And that stuck with me to think about, man, I could do this conceivably forever. Like my own terms worth work with people that I want to work with, where there's no rules and no boundaries and we get to make it up as, as we go. And that was amazing. Once you get a taste of that, it's pretty addicting. I appreciate you sharing that story in terms of how you started just doing events fraternity and then eventually ended up full-fledged business on its own. It seems like you have so many different ideas and started so many different businesses in a variety of categories. I know that the events business, it was a bit serendipitous. It wasn't something that you kind of expected to happen, right? It just kind of happened. But how do you kind of manage that internally of, hey, this could be cool to build, but maybe this is actually a real proper full-fledging business? Yeah, so I've learned that the hard way. I'll share some examples. But before I do, I always felt like there are at least two sort of types of entrepreneurs. There's one type and there's probably more, but the two that stick out to me are the ones where there's one type of entrepreneur that has this insatiable appetite to solve a specific problem. It's this itch that they have to scratch. You know, it's the person that since they were one years old always wanted to solve world hunger or solve climate change. And like, that's their life mission. And on the other spectrum, there's entrepreneurs that maybe look more like me, which is more of the art and journey of turning nothing into something, like regardless of what product or category that might be in. And so, yeah, to your point, I've done that in countless categories and I've done it to a fault. Like, you know, for example, I once thought, (laughs) I thought it would be a cool idea Do you remember the Zach Morris phones, like the big, you know, brick like phones, uh, cell phones? Well, I thought it'd be a cool idea to make one of those, but in such a way where you would put your iPhone in it. And so you could basically turn your iPhone into a giant Zach Morris phone and walk around like a big asshole, basically just drop your phone on the table, walking into a meeting while everyone's... Anyway, I thought it was a pretty fun idea. So I, I went and I made it. I partnered with a manufacturing company in China would be up till midnight, one in the morning, coordinating with them. I got prototypes made. I sold it. I, uh, I got on the phone and ultimately connected with Urban Outfitter. And I told them what I was making. And they were so excited. They gave me a purchase order for a few thousand of them. And I hadn't even made the thing yet. And so here I was ready to push the go button and manufacture them and sell them into and with Urban Outfitters. And then I just remember I got to a point and I'm like, you know what? This isn't, this isn't a business that I want to run with really, because also at the same time, I started getting interested in what became a software company that I started and sold. So what I learned through this process is there are a lot of great ideas, a lot of bad ideas. There's a lot of great ideas for businesses in small markets, and there's also great ideas for businesses in large markets. And what I've learned is it takes just as much work and energy to build a good company in a very niche or small market as it does to build a good company in a very, very large market. And, you know, it's like, could you climb the hill that you get to the peak in five minutes, or would you rather climb the hill or mountain that takes you, you know, five, 10 hours, which one is more rewarding, which is the higher mountain, higher mountain to climb. And so for me early, I realized if I'm going to put in the work, the juice has to be worth the squeeze. 
And even to this day, whenever I think about building a business, I think about it through that lens. And in the lens of more looking at opportunities that could actually impact larger markets as opposed to smaller markets? Yeah, that's right. When I get involved with businesses or start them, to me, they have to have the opportunity to have pretty meaningful scale. Because again, once you go on this journey, you want to be able to bring that market to everybody in the world. Like literally, that would be, you know, not every business does that, but you want to have enough runway where the business can grow and not be capped out early on. Right? If you were to create the world's best shoe company for only right-footed people with three toes, you know, I don't know how many shoes would you sell? Like your business would be capped pretty quickly versus building a business in a large market, you know, just lots more you can do, lots more products you can build, lots more people you can work with and so on. It's just the, the journey becomes much more comprehensive, interesting, and longer. That makes a lot of sense. What led you to building a skincare brand with Tula? Like what was the insight and how did that opportunity come about? So to answer that question, I think I need to take you back a little bit to my software company called Spinback. So that was a business that I was working on with two buddies from college. And the premise was really about helping online brands and retailers measure how much money they made from Facebook. And this is around 2009, 2010, at a time when Facebook was really beginning to take off and every brand on earth realized they needed to be on Facebook and they all wanted likes. You know, they all wanted their Facebook likes. Problem is no one knew what they meant, especially the brands and retailers that were in business to drive sales. They had no idea what those likes meant in terms of revenue. And so at Spinback, we connected those dots and we built analytics that would show our customers like L'Oreal and QVC and Godiva and so on, how social media and Facebook was not only facilitating product sales, but how much and, and by who. And so after we merged that with a business called Buddy Media, which we then sold to Salesforce, I took some time to do my own independent investing. I was, uh, I guess you can call it fun employed, working as a VC, investing with and alongside other, uh, other firms, working out of a family office on the Upper East Side, really wandering the desert, trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And along the way, I came up with a new business idea back in retail and, and software. More specifically, I had a new sort of B2B idea that I wanted to bring to market with the brand and retail customers. So I went back and I pitched them all. Uh, I went back to, you know, again, L'Oreal, Nike, QVC, and I pitched them this idea. And one of them, in QVC in particular, told me that they were thinking about a new strategic initiative. They realized that the world was changing. It was moving away from traditional media, radio, print, TV to digital, surprise, surprise. And they wanted to prove that they can launch brands digitally, but didn't know how. And they knew that I knew their business pretty well. And they knew that I had a digital background. And so during that time, working out of that VC firm's office, I got to know another uh, person that was doing his own private equity investing. And the reason he's able to do his own private equity investing is because he started a beauty company called Bobby Brown Cosmetics. So we had gotten to hear each other's stories and got to know each other. And I, I learned the inside uh, happenings of the early days of Bobby Brown. And he kind of got a little bit of flavor of what was happening in the e-commerce and retail space for me. And in short, we realized we had a unique opportunity to potentially build our own beauty brand with the third largest retailer in the world and do so in a way that was digitally native, you know, given my background. And during that time, 
we also knew that we needed a legitimate concept for anything we would build. And so we ended up getting connected to what is now our other co-founder, Dr. Roshini Raj. Um, in fact, my wife saw her on a TV segment. She does many TV appearances on CNN, Fox, The View, Dr. Oz, and so on, gastroenterologist at NYU. And so she sent me a link to the video. I watched the video and felt, oh my God, she's incredible. And I need to speak with her. And so got on the phone with her. Phone became an email or rather phone call became an in-person meeting. And after having a few conversations, she said, you know, have you looked at probiotics? And what do you mean? Have we looked at probiotics? Probiotics for skincare? And she said, yeah, in fact, uh, take a look at this research. And so at the time, the American Academy of Dermatology declared probiotics to be breakthrough. And so here I am, you know, now piecing all these pieces together. We now realized that we had a unique distribution strategy with sort of the industry, an industry expert that knew the space coupled with the right digital chops, if you will, and understanding on how to build a digitally native brand coupled with the person that could provide the real medical input and science and credibility, and frankly, the idea uh, for the brand. And that just felt like a unique combination of all the right pieces, the right place at the right time. And was like, you know what? Didn't think I'd ever be going down this, we're going up this mountain, but it just felt, it felt too unique and serendipitous and I said, screw it, let's do it. Let's build this uh, company, which is now we know to be a company called Tula Skincare. That's amazing. I talk with quite a few founders who we talk about complementary skills when having co-founders on this show and, and also just on Zoom calls or, or just meeting them off the podcast. But it makes sense when you look back and you look at, you know, maybe your three different experiences with you and your, your two other co-founders about how and why this could be something very successful, which of course it has been with Tula. That's just super amazing. How did you maybe approach the launch? Talk to me a little bit about those early days. You thought this could be something real or was there a moment um, after you've launched in maybe the first, I don't know, 60, 90 days where you maybe had an idea of where this actually could scale to? Yeah, to be clear, in the early days, I didn't think it could really scale really anywhere. Uh, I think we had an idea that it could do well, but let's start small, you know, as my other co-founder Ken always likes to say, let's start small and, and build from strength and let's go narrow and deep. And so in the early days of the launch, we realized we had a unique opportunity to be narrow and deep with the third largest retailer in the world, you know, QVC, but also shortly thereafter, go narrow and deep on our own D2C channel, given my experience in e-commerce. And so that was the focus. To do that, we started small with just a few SKUs. I think we started with five SKUs of four products in the discovery kit. And we did the bare minimum run of inventory to have just enough to launch. And that was it. We launched and we sort of said, let's see what we have. And if it works, we'll keep going and just sort of go from there. And so in the early days, I remember even saying, we weren't going to even raise money from VCs because we felt like, let's just take the long view. Let's not try to build one of these hyper growth D2C brands that raises a bunch of money and sort of gets ahead of their skis. Much like his experience with Bobby Brown, we figured let's just try to build a great brand that's profitable, that's cash conscious. And if we do that, then maybe slow and steady wins the race. And that's the approach we took in the earliest days for a few years, actually. That's awesome. That's really cool. It's quite interesting that you took that approach to get to profitability. 
When did you decide to fundraise? And what was the reason why you eventually decided to approach VCs? It was working. Once you sell stuff, you need more stuff to sell. And unlike software, which is my day job, to sell skincare products or any CPG product, it is a physical thing that must be manufactured first. To manufacture said thing, you need cash. You need money to make it. And then you need money to fund the operations and sales and distribution and marketing of those products. And so as we started growing and became successful, we needed more money to fund our working capital. We brought in money from friends and family, literally my brother, my sister, my cousin, as did my other partners. And we gave them very favorable terms because we figured if this does well and they do well, great, that's fine with us. And then it kept working and kept working. We hired a few people to help us scale. And one of them, I realized, you know, at that point I wanted to get back to software and figured there's probably people better than me that could take the helm of a women's skincare company day to day. And as it was scaling so much, we realized that there were other parties out there that were interested in helping us go even faster. And, you know, a few years after we launched private equity firm, Mel Catterton saw what we were up to. They became really excited. And then eventually they became our partner on the business and put in even more money into the business. Got it. And what was your approach to go omni-channel and to move maybe offline or, or even to, to online retailers? Yeah, it's funny. When I was working on my last software company, Spinback, we worked with a lot of these large brands and retailers, but we also worked with a lot of the early, early first D2C companies like Bonobos and Morby Parker and the Groupons of the world, if you remember those days with group uh, selling. And so we got an up-close look at what did and did not work with respect to e-commerce and retail for that matter. And this was a time when a lot of these brands were saying, we're never going to go into retail. It's only D2C. Like we're going to cut out all the middlemen and all these third-party retailers, and it's only going to be D2C. And I watched how these businesses did because our product measured the revenue and we had dashboards of how their businesses were doing. And I just remember thinking back to that mountain analogy, it was pretty clear that at some point they were going to hit a cap and they were going to need to diversify revenue streams. But moreover, the diversification, I always felt seeing it would actually help increase the revenue streams of those other channels. And so from day one with Tula, even though we had the background with e-commerce, from day one, we said, this isn't going to be a D2C brand. It'll be a digitally first or digitally native brand, but it will be an omni-channel brand. And those channels will complement one another and whatever channels will end will be narrow and deep. And again, because we felt like we weren't going to be this buzzy D2C brand, it was going to be a more dare I say, traditional approach, we also didn't feel like we wanted to raise VC money because it was, to many investors, may have seen a little bit boring, honestly, like another beauty company. But in fact, that is what excited us, that we would be, quote, just another beauty company in the sense that we would try to be an endeavor to be as successful as we could in the few channels that we were in that complemented each other really, really well. And we would do so profitably and we would do so in a way that was pragmatic and build a brand that's built to last. And we always had that view at the earliest days of the company. No, that's quite interesting. And also given your background and understanding through Spinback, um, how other uh, digitally first companies were performing, um, understanding that of course, you know, there eventually would be a cap and then 
you need like an omni-channel strategy. You can't just be online. That makes a lot of sense in terms of how you also approached in your beginning strategy that was quite differentiated compared to other companies that were kind of emerging online at that time. Why did you decide to get back into software and step down from Tula and take more of a backseat? So as you heard me talking about earlier, you know, my background and passion has always been in building computers. I studied electrical and computer engineering at school. Like that I love, but I also love building businesses. And so in the early days of Tula, things were going really, really well. I was doing pretty good job getting it off the ground and knew we needed help to scale eventually. Once, once we started hitting some inflection points, I knew I, I was going to need to build out a leadership team. And I remember vividly one meeting is when I had the light bulb moment. And the meeting was on 60th and Madison in our VC office where we incubated Tula and also my other software company, Truths. And we were having a quote product development meeting. And in that product development meeting, we were sitting at a conference room table with about eight or nine lab samples in white packages spread out across the table. And we were trying to figure out which fragrance or scent did we want in the product? Did we want like a citrusy smell or a lavender smell or a no smell? And I just remember having this out of body experience thinking, what am I doing in this room? And what am I doing with my life? I'm making beauty products. Like, you know, again, I never thought in a million years I would be building a beauty company, let alone doing beauty product development. Doesn't mean it wasn't a bad idea. In fact, on the contrary, it was a great idea. It just doesn't mean that it was for me. And someone had a conversation last week with someone and he gave me the great analogy that I've been thinking about. Another serial entrepreneur on his fourth or fifth company and he doesn't need to work again. And I'm like, what's in it for you, man? Why are you still at it? You don't need to do this. And he said something that will live with me forever. He goes, you know, growing up, I love to play video games. I loved it. And what I'm doing now is I'm playing video games. Only difference is someone's given me money to play the video game that I want to play. And, and when I heard him say that, I go, you are so right. It's Tula was a fun video game, but there was another video game that for me personally, and who I am seemed to be a hell of a lot more fun for me, which is in, in software and what I'm doing with troops. So it's not that, you know, I wasn't doing a good job or it wasn't fun. It was just, there was something that was perhaps more fun for me to do day to day. And again, figured that in combination with maybe there's someone also better than me out there just made it at the time, pretty easy decision for me to, step down and go play a different video game and just put other pieces in place to ensure that the growth continued at Tula. Talk to us a little bit about Troops.ai and a little bit of how you started that company after you left Tula. Wanted to get back to software. And as you can now tell along my career, I've come to appreciate the idea of turning ideas into something and the something becomes a business. And what's a business about? It's making a product and selling it to customers and, and getting money for it. And in that process, every company on earth needs a way to manage information on their customers, their revenue, their pipeline. And we know that category to be CRM. We know Salesforce to be the leader who was the acquirer of my last company, Buddy Media slash Spinback. And so just became fascinated by that intersection of technology and sales and hustle, if you will, uh, which is the category of CRM. And so the thinking was, okay, this is a really, really, really important category. It's also really, really painful to use. Like I remember being at Salesforce 
And my manager came to me and said, Dan, if your team doesn't update Salesforce by five o'clock every Tuesday, they're fired. And I remember thinking how insane that was, but how logical it was. And in of itself, pretty insane that those two things can be true at the same time. And we thought, man, there's got to be a much easier way to do this. And so as I started to get into software, I reconnected with a friend who had just come back from Brazil, a hiatus that he took after being part of a, an exit of a company called Single Platform at Constant Contact, one of my co-founders, Scott Britton. And we were kind of kicking this idea around of what if you could interact with your CRM much in the same way you interact with your friends over text messaging. Like how cool would it be if you could text with, literally text with uh, Salesforce or, or your CRM. And at the time, six of the top 10 most used apps in the world were messaging apps. And so we felt so obvious to us in the world where, you know, you're just texting and scrolling through Instagram or Snapchat or with the click of a button, buying things on Amazon. Like the consumer world was so fucking easy to do anything yet at work where we spend, by the way, a third, if not more of our lives working, everything there was so painful. So what if you could interact with it all for messaging? And so that was this wild question we sought to answer. And fast forward a little bit, we did that. We integrated those important back office systems of record like Salesforce with these messaging interfaces. And more specifically, we saw this little startup doing really, really interesting things in the messaging space that we were beginning to get a little bit intrigued with. And then all of a sudden that company Slack announced a developer platform, their growth numbers, and an $80 million Slack fund and told me, hmm, it seems like they're onto something. And it seems like they're going to be or could be one of the, if not the most important ecosystem in business, much like Facebook was in the consumer world. And so much like we built power tools on Facebook for the consumers, what if we can build power tools for businesses in this new, dare I say, you know, social messaging first medium? And so we were the first company to do that. We integrated Salesforce Slack under that vision that there needed to be this intertwined marriage between systems of record like Salesforce with messaging. And that was five years ago. And what's funny is if you fast forward today, not too long ago, Salesforce acquired Slack for $30 billion, making it the second largest technology acquisition ever and the largest acquisition Salesforce has ever done. And by the way, you know, along that path, Slack became one of our investors. We were their first ever Series A, Series B and follow-on investment. They're also a customer of ours. And it's just pretty wild and validating to see, you know, that story that we were focusing on five years ago come to fruition the way it has today with the acquisition of Slack by Salesforce. Absolutely. That's fascinating in terms of just how the blend of what you were trying to do almost has come together with uh, Slack and Salesforce. Has that acquisition at all affected troops? I know it was still pretty recent, but have you had to change any of your strategy as a result of that acquisition? So how has it affected troops and has it? I mean, the answer is yes. I think in the biggest sense, you know, one of the, the challenges we faced in building troops for the past five years has been one around the fact that we've been very early and very evangelical. So, for example, every company pretty much has a problem on and in around managing information on their customers and their revenue and using the CRM. And so we would have conversations with companies and tell them that for all of these problems they've had forever, the right way to solve them was to do so in chat and messaging. And a lot of people would look at us like we were fucking crazy. Like, what do you mean we're going to go improve our forecasting using chat? Or what do you mean we're going to go increase our sales velocity using, using messaging? I don't want people talking at work. I want them selling. 
And so there was just this philosophical gap that needed to be bridged. And that was very hard. We would hear things like, what do you mean people could update Salesforce in Slack? They could just log into Salesforce to do that. It's like, yeah, but are they? Are they really? They're, they're not. Otherwise, we wouldn't even be having this conversation and so on and so on. It, it's sort of like, what do you mean I need that box and screen? It was that sort of challenge. And so with the acquisition, I think all of a sudden the whole market literally overnight woke up and realized, wait a minute, this is the right way to think about solving these problems. After all, the leader in the world at this stuff, Salesforce, is saying it is the right approach. In fact, they put $30 billion behind it because that's how much conviction they have. And so through that lens, a lot of the customer conversations we've been having very recently have been incredible because all of a sudden this idea has been validated. And for a lot of the people that were either not there at all or on the fence, both have been moved either completely over the fence or now on the fence, which we think works in our favor. And now everyone needs a strategy and everyone needs a solution. And because we've been doing this for five years, we have the opportunity to help all of these customers very quickly deploy um, this new solution in this, in this new way, whether it's companies like, uh, like, as I mentioned, Slack as a customer or Twilio or Shopify um, or Cameo or Indela, all of these very fast growing companies are completely rethinking how to run and scale their organization. And they're doing it with troops because their team, and they know, especially in a remote world with, with COVID, with everyone working from home or on their phones, like messaging is where people are spending their time. It is the water cooler for the whole company. And so by bringing in all those mission critical processes and workflows, in a way that's easy and elegant and actionable and dare I say, delightful and fun, it's totally changed how they think about running and scaling their organization. It seems almost like the Salesforce acquisition of Slack just validates your value prop, right? To other, as you mentioned, Twilio and Shopify. So it just kind of validates this blend of messaging and CRM. So that's pretty cool. Since you've built both enterprise and consumer businesses, what are some of the differences that you've experienced? So let's start with some of the obvious ones. One of the beautiful things about software companies that is not true in, uh, well, let's call it physical consumer businesses, is software, your costs of goods are almost non-existent. It's just lines of code. Whereas in consumer businesses, or again, physical product consumer businesses, you require cash to make physical things. There's inventory, there's working capital. And that's really important because I think a lot of consumer companies that I've seen, they think they need a great idea and great sales and marketing and great distribution. And don't get me wrong, they do. But what they often overlook and definitely require are good old fashioned accounting principles and inventory management and supply chain management. And if you don't have those things, you can't build any business. Like if you, if you literally can't think about how much inventory to order and how to manage your cash position for working capital, all the other fun stuff is impossible. And so I think that's a huge, huge difference related. Um, the velocity in which you can sell software is faster than the velocity in which you could sell physical products, right? If you go to a software website today, you could theoretically click a button and put in a credit card and you're using the products in seconds. Can't really do that in consumer. So there's a speed dimension as well. And so like, there's many, many more, but you know, those are two big ones. I've always felt 
for me, technology and software was compelling because your store of, of people you can sell to is seemingly infinite. Literally, you can sell to anybody in the world. Now, same is true with consumer companies. Think about Facebook as a digital consumer company. Yeah, they have customers literally all over the world. If you take something like Tula, for example, we too can sell all over the world. But if we wanted to, and at some point we will, get into other international markets, well, then you need to deal with more regulatory issues and different packaging issues and so on and so on. And so the barriers of entry to scale are internationally and globally look very different than that of a software company. And so, again, there's a whole lot more, but those are just a few. Absolutely. I mean, software, that marginal cost is pretty minimal, as you mentioned in a lot of detail. And I agree with you in terms of how to also think about expanding into other markets. As an investor, what do you look for in entrepreneurs? I know you mentioned how there's these two types. Is there one type that you kind of over-index on or think about more of? Just would love to kind of know like kind of a little bit about your process identifying entrepreneurs in the very early stages to invest in. So there's a few things, and it's not a perfect science, but the first few things I, I look for are first, you know, hustle and execution. Like we live in a world today where I don't think there's an excuse for not being able to prove any traction whatsoever between, you know, the internet and access to information and access to people. You should be able to go very, very far with very, very little. So I'm always interested to see kind of the grit and what people have done, whatever that may look like, whether it's fundraising or building a team or a prototype, like some proof of hustle and execution. The second thing I look for is aside from, are they curious and are they intelligent? Uh, not an idiot, frankly, because you need to be very thoughtful in building a startup because it is hard. But the other thing I look for is someone, whether or not they're very open-minded, I won't use the word coachable because to some extent, I like people that, are more right than wrong. And if they're not coachable, but they're right, that's also fine. But, but someone that's able to change their mind because inevitably as you build these businesses, the facts on the ground will change, the circumstances will change and you need to be able to adapt. And if you're so stubborn and not open-minded and receptive to those changes, then your business will die, right? It's like, if you are a pilot and it is clear and blue skies and all of a sudden it starts to snow and there's a huge storm and you ignore that because you just wanted to like get from point A to point B and you're just so stubborn, like you're going to crash and die. And the same is true in startups. And so I think it's really important that entrepreneurs are very, very open-minded and not so idealistic or stubborn that they're blinded by their own desires to succeed at that startup. Yeah, I think that it's almost a delicate balance, right? Of you want an entrepreneur that obviously knows the category that they're building in extremely well, but have the open-mindedness to hear, you know, differing opinions where other folks are coming from um, that actually could be useful and valuable to how uh, they approach their own business and not just be very single-minded or, or tunnel vision on their vision. That's one other thing I'll add is, you know, it's important that people are very self-aware because right? if you're not self-aware and you don't have the right self-perception and you don't really understand the circumstances, then there's no way you're going to course correct in those circumstances. And so that's also another important thing is you hear people talk about what's more important, IQ or EQ, right? I think as an entrepreneur, it is more important to have more EQ. That is if you're building a cure for cancer startup, then yeah, maybe IQ in that example is better if it's such 
if it's a much more scientific or binary circumstance. That's a great point. What's one thing that you would change with the fundraising venture capital process? I don't think I would really change anything, honestly. The reason is today there's more access to capital than ever before. There are investors investing in everything and anything at all stages and for all reasons. And so I know, and I've been there as an entrepreneur, often it may feel impossible to raise money. But again, if you've got the right disposition as a person and orientation of how you're thinking about the world and you've proven some traction in a market that people are excited about and you're a good storyteller, you should be able to raise money today. It doesn't need to be the glamorous millions of dollars you read about in in TechCrunch, but that's okay too. Like again, with Tula and even Spinback, when we raised money initially from friends and family, it was literally an angel round, like in its truest sense. It was angel investors, my brother, my sister, my father, you know, family members. It wasn't, let's go raise a huge slug of capital from, you know, the Sequoias or first round capitals of the world. And that was for the beauty business. I mean, for Troops, we did go out and raise venture capital pretty much right out of the gate. But again, that was a very different business and a very different perspective of how we wanted to grow or build and grow that company. So in short, I don't know that it would change everything. It's incredibly circumstantial. If you're an entrepreneur, just depending on who you are, what the circumstances, there is a path for you. It may not look like everybody else's path and that's okay. I guess one of the luxuries that we have right now, certainly there's so much money in the capital markets that it's a good time to kind of have the opportunity to fundraise, right? What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? I'll start with a professional book. I would say on the professional side, a book called Good to Great by Jim Collins. I read that, I should reread it, but years ago, it was It was the first time I really felt and believed that I could try to and should try to build businesses that were built to last. Not just companies that I start because it's fun and try to sell them, but actually this idea that there are other people in the world that have done this. And so why can't I? You know, I'll add one more shoe dog by Phil Knight, especially if you're in the consumer world, is a must read. You read the book of the early days and founding story of Nike through today. And I remember reading that book and every page I felt incredibly stressed for this guy. I'm like, oh my God, Nike's going to fail. Every page, every chapter. And guess what? They're doing quite okay. And I think that narrative is probably true for most entrepreneurs. You know, outside looking into a lot of these great companies, as good as they may be doing, it doesn't feel that way on the inside. So that was a good reminder. On the personal front, I'll say uh, Harry Potter, uh, as cheesy as that may sound, and That is because growing up, I didn't love to read. My parents would make me read books and I hated it. And then when I first read Harry Potter, that changed my relationship with reading. I loved it. And since then, just loved reading more. And I read a ton today. So, yeah. That's great. We've had other guests that have mentioned Good to Great and Chew Dog. So we'll certainly add your name to those on the website. But Harry Potter is a first. I love Harry Potter. So I'm excited to add Harry on there. My last two questions. What's the best piece of advice that you've received? The best piece of advice I've received in a professional setting is to surround yourself with people that are better and smarter than you. You never want to be the smartest person in the room. So everything I do, I try to be the dumbest person because I know that I've got a lot to learn. And if I could surround myself with people that are better than me at their craft, I'll get better. I'll level up. I'll grow. And as a result, the company will also. And so Every business I work on, I think about that deeply. It's a great point. And my final question for you is, what's one piece of advice 
for founders who are currently building? If you believe in what you're doing and you've spent the time to be thoughtful about the risks and you've assessed it, you know, just keep going. Um, but again, I would just be mindful of the risks. It's really, this game is not easy. It's really, really hard. I think you need to think about this a lot also, cognitive dissonance. Like you need to simultaneously hold two very contradictory thoughts. On one hand, you need to believe in your bones and to the core that this thing will be successful. But you also need to, in your bones, to the core, prove and evaluate why it will break and die and fail. And when you do those things together, you're constantly in the state of assessing the risks and where things can break and why, and then understanding if you can fix them or if they are even fixable. And as you go through this tension over and over again, inevitably you're either perfecting or improving a business or you're quickly realizing it's not a business that it's that, that's worth doing. So, you know, try to have cognitive dissonance and try to be both wildly and cautiously optimistic, but be mindful that this is fucking hard and it's probably not going to work too. Yeah, it reminds me of my conversation with Mercedes Bent, where she said how she likes to think is long-term in terms of your vision, be wildly optimistic, but short-term, be freaking paranoid. Well, Dan, this has been so much fun. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, Mike, thanks for having me, man. And there you have it. It was amazing having Dan on. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone. 